Well, I am, by academic training, called a critical analyst of political religious rhetoric. Now, what that means is that my dissertation was about analyzing the religious rhetoric of a politician, in particular, Ronald Reagan. What that also means is that during these election cycles, I am in season. I mean, this is really my favorite time to function in this particular role because I get to watch and see how these candidates try to play evangelicals to make them vote for them. Democrat, Republican, they all want to get elected. They all are drawn to the power and influence, and so they'll say and do just about anything to make you think they're on your team. And, and one of the funny things is, is this past couple months, uh, they've had to engage with Pope Francis, the head of the Roman Catholic Church. Pope Francis went to South America, and then after that he, he made some comments about the abuse of power, about how the wealthy should take care of the poor, and about how capitalistic systems, if they're unchecked and unregulated, can actually serve to harm people and create an unjust society. Understandably, the Republican conservative candidates took issue, and surprise, Donald Trump had something bad to say about the Pope. And like Eddie Murphy used to say, I guess he wanted to go to hell and not wait in line with everybody else, you know. Um, but, but at the same time, uh, the Democrats celebrated. They just jumped up and down. This is our guy, you know. He loves the socialist economy. And so they were all on his side. They're going to all have a difficult week ahead of them, primarily because last week Pope Francis released his most recent papal encyclical, it is going to be challenging and put them in the precarious position of not being able to say something which is difficult for them. His encyclical, The Joy of Love, is a gentle reminder of God's call to imitate him for our good and his glory. It's an encyclical about marriage and family. Republicans are going to have a tough time after lambasting him for being a communist or whatever they were saying he was, they're going to have a difficult time celebrating his conservative stance on the family. And on the flip side, the Democrats are going to have a difficult time condemning a pope they celebrated a month ago as the savior because now he has developed and kind of unfolded what he would call a biblical definition of marriage. See, Pope Francis has done something that's really fascinating to me, and that is he has presented artfully truth and grace in such a way as you're sort of confused because you agree with him, but you're like disturbed by it. This is really the call of the Christian. It is, and I like to use this image because I'm trying to eat healthy these days, and so I'm eating a lot of wraps. Never thought I'd be a wrap-eating kind of guy, especially the ones that are green. I don't even want to know how those things get green, but they look healthy because they're green. So, But our message is supposed to be truth sort of wrapped in grace. It's not one or the other. You can't, a wrap is not a wrap if it's just a tortilla or whatever the heck that thing is. And, and at the same time, the contents have to be wrapped in something. And so we have a message where Jesus came, according to John chapter 1, verse 14, full of grace and truth. We are supposed to simultaneously be gracious and truthful. This is, the this is the ministerial call for every believer, to tell truth in the most Christ-like manner possible, even if it offends. The greatest 
sermon prep challenge for me this week has been how much of Pope Francis's encyclical to include in today's sermon. I was tempted to just read the thing and then say the benediction, you know, and we just all go home, which would have been shorter than my sermon, so I'm sure some of you wish I'd do that too. I want to point out, though, that in what Francis has been trying to do, what our church as a Christian non-denominational church would hope to do, would be to do the same thing, an attempt to mirror the character and the ministry of Jesus by being full of grace and truth. This is what Jude, the brother of Jesus, is doing in his message to the letter and the people he's writing. We have just begun last week. You can catch up with us if you missed last week's message. Uh, A new series called Bold Letters from the Blood Brothers. We are analyzing the pastoral letters written by Jude and James, the half-brothers of Jesus. Jude is once again showing us that we are called to model Jesus, not just in loving one another, but at times saying the difficult things that need to be said and embracing the difficult truths that come to us. Now, there are some of us who have been raised in really hard churches, and so the idea of hearing difficult truth rubs us the wrong way. And then there are others of us who have, uh, are so excited about grace and our theology of grace that it causes us to maybe at times uh, wince a bit when difficult things are said. And yet we can't walk away from the difficult truths that are in Scripture. And so Jude wants us to know, as we talked about last week, that we are secure in in Christ, that we are part of the family, but there are some family discussions we have to have. You ever had that in your home? You know, you don't want your kids to think you don't love them, but you go, okay, time for a family conference, which, of course, my kids hated you know, because they're all like, oh, boy, time for a family conference. And it was just like, hey, listen, we're going to do a better job of cleaning up our rooms, all right? All right, and no more talking back to mom, all right, or I'm going to be coming home from work. You know, or, so you have these little family conferences to just kind of shore things up. It's just a part of life. It doesn't mean you're unloved or uncared for. It just means we all know we're broken, and from time to time we hear things that are hard for us to swallow, difficult changes that we have to make in our lifestyles and lives in order to please each other in relationship. And the same goes for our relationship with God. Last week we talked about verses 1 and 2 of Jude, which read, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. We are the called of God. We are his called and kept beloved We don't use that term beloved much in our culture, but it means God likes you a whole lot. You are adored by him. You are not barely a Christian. He's fairly fond of you, to say the least. He he emotionally, dispositionally is in love with his children. He loves, and you are his beloved. We know some things about the audience of Jude's letter, not by virtue of the text. Some epistles, letters that we can read in the New Testament, make it very clear who the audience is. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians, hence we call it 1 Corinthians. Now, in this case, Jude doesn't say who he's writing to, but we can infer some things. One of the first things we obviously get is that he's addressing fellow believers who are proclaiming a gospel in the first century 
that is significantly different than the philosophical systems of their day. We also know by virtue of the timeline that they are a young church, as all churches during the lifetime of Jesus' brothers would be. There was no such thing as a Christian church before Jesus died and was raised from the dead. And for the first time, this young church is experiencing the painful intersection of church life and human nature. They are seeing false representations of the faith for the first time. Sometimes you may look around or you may see something on the television or you may hear something in the news about a Christian who scandalously was really pretending to be a Christian just to make money. And this is an unfortunate reality in our day, but this was the first time they encountered it. And it's happened in every generation since. People who were not genuine believers have used Christianity to bring about and make something for themselves. And they're seeing these false representations for the first time, and it should bring us comfort. It should bring us comfort because it's nothing new. Jude is going to write us, and he is going to share with us, in light of the fact that we are the beloved of God, two responsibilities we have if we are going to be the children of God. And the first is this. The beloved must contend for the faith. The, the writer in verse 3 says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So clearly he's writing to us, the beloved. And given that this is God's word, infallible and passed down through the apostolic authority of the church through all generations, it is still addressing us in our current context, similar in many ways to the context that Jude was writing into. We are told and encouraged that we, that we are to defend or contend for the authenticity of a biblical and apostolically handed down faith, that there is going to be a time when you and I are going to have to actually call something out. We're going to have to actually stand for something. It is not new. And every now and again, you'll hear some, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt, well-intentioned Christian minister who progressively will say things like, you know, we don't argue about theology. We don't argue about the Bible. And what that basically means for them is, is that they don't like the discomfort associated with ever having to be absolute about anything. And the scriptures would call us here that we are going to have to contend for the faith. He's writing about a salvation that belongs to all who call themselves God's children. It is one holy, we call it in uh, ecclesiastical and creedal terms, apostolic We call it one holy Catholic, small c, universal faith. He is appealing to us that this is our common faith, our common salvation, a faith that was once delivered to the saints. And this is critical too because its rooting is not just in his particular philosophical thought. It was presented by Jesus to the apostles. And Jude knows this more than most because He was Jesus' little brother. And so there is a confirmation that there was, in fact, a truth that was shared and was easily defined in its most basic form. 
the gospel. We look to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 to clarify and, and, and really solidify our common understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And so I read, this is Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not the result of works, so no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What you see is a pattern that Paul lays out that salvation by grace leads to a life of good works. Now, I grew up Roman Catholic. Some of you grew up in different denominations, and maybe it was unique to my experience, but I don't think so after talking to many, many people raised in many, many different churches. And that is that in your head, you may have, like me, had this equation going in terms of whether or not you were going to go to heaven or whether or not God really was like liked you a lot. And it was, if I believe in Jesus and I do good things, then maybe one day I get to be with the Father. And so all of life is this tremendous sense of insecurity about whether or not my eternal destiny is set or whether or not I've done enough good things to outweigh my bad things. And that, at one point in my life, brought me to a place of, of realizing that that can't be the gospel. I can't ever be good enough to be at peace with God. And when I was finally told the gospel is presented here in Ephesians 2, that we are saved by grace, that is a gift that God gives to us, and it's not by anything we do, and that's so that no one would brag or boast. When, when I realized that, it liberated me, but it didn't liberate me to just do whatever I wanted. It liberated me to do what verse 10 says, to do the good works which God prepared in advance for me to do. So the equation isn't faith in Jesus plus good works equals salvation. What it is is faith in Jesus equals salvation plus good works. See, good works are the byproduct of a genuine faith. This is why we can be, and the believers in Jude's letter can be referred to as saints, I mean, he's writing all these people, and clearly everyone who read this letter was not venerated by the Roman Catholic Church to be a saint, or we would have way too many saints. And the process of becoming a saint in the Catholic Church is, is pretty hairy. I mean, you've got to have miracles and confirmation and all sorts of stuff. Let me just assure you that in this particular passage, he is not talking about anything of the sort. Saints are anybody who has been made holy by Jesus. And we are made holy by Jesus in two very specific ways. One is once the Holy Spirit takes up residence in a believer, once Jesus' death on the cross uh, is attributed or imputed to your life, you become holy in the sight of God. That's the gift of grace. You are all of a sudden now righteous by virtue of your faith. This is how you are made okay with God. It's not by anything you do. It's by all of the works of Christ. They they have made you holy in his sight. But the term holy actually means set apart. One of my professors who I've been quoting more lately because I've been on what the president of the college I teach at calls a deep dive. I've been rereading the trilogy of books written by Dr. R.C. Sproul. And in the holiness of God, one of the things Dr. Sproul wrote about sainthood is significant for our case. Let me read for you. Quote, 
The saints of Scripture were called saints not because they were already pure, but because they were people who were set apart and called to purity. The word holy has the same two meanings when applied to people as it has when it is applied to God. We recall that when the word holy is used to describe God, it is not only calls attention to this in the sense in which he is different or apart from us, but it also calls attention to his absolute purity. But we are not God. We are not transcendent. We are certainly not pure. So when we are called saints or the holy ones of God, it is in a sense of God being other and separated from us. We are called, we are separated out for his purposes. We are to pursue holiness. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, we've been saved by grace through faith, not from ourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so no one can brag or boast about it. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do the good works which he prepared in advance for us to do. What Jude is calling us to do is to contend for this faith. We fight for the reality of the gospel as they did. You may ask, why? Well, it's really for the two reasons we'd mentioned before, the glory of Jesus and the good of others. Jesus came with grace and truth, and our job is to exhibit his balance between the two. A drug addict will always fight the intervention because they don't like hearing the truth. But it is not loving to give people what they want if what they want is ultimately bad for them. And there is a component to the gospel where you and I, as members of God's family, have to sit down and have the family meeting, and he says, something's got to change. This is the life of the person who is in relationship with God. You are called and set apart to do the things that God has set in advance for you to do. And that's walking in his holiness so that he can be seen in you. Now, When people get told the truth, oftentimes, including ourselves, it offends us. And even if you do it graciously and kindly, your faith that Jesus, according to what Jude is calling us to, is contend for the faith, the faith that was originally delivered to the earliest followers of Christ, this still will offend some. But it's the duty of the believer because as early as the first century, there's, there were those who used the gospel to serve their own ends and in many ways were twisting the gospel to get a following after themselves. We are called to reflect the character of Christ. Uh, I've told many of you this season, um, I have for the first time in my life uh, adapted a new title. I am a a baseball coach, um, and it's completely out of dire necessity because when the coach at our school uh, moved along, two of his assistants moved along with him, and so our interim coach was kind of sort of all by himself, and so I got the privilege of being what's known as the bench coach. And let me give you an idea what that looks like. I sit on the bench, which I got a lot of experience doing in high school, so I'm really qualified for this. You can tell right away. All right, and the other thing I do is I encourage the guys. That's all I do. Hey, we can do this, and I just yell a lot. And as my family will tell you, that's a real gifting of mine too. So we're right two for two right now. Uh, one, one of the particular challenges for me as the coach, though, is, is that I have this responsibility of 
well, encouraging the young men to use language that would please God. And athletes, um, well, I was an athlete way long time ago, and I just want to learn, it's challenging to pick the right words at the right time, particularly when you're angry with umpires and the like. But my role is to kind of sort of be that center. A friend of mine joked, uh, the team must have been in really bad shape if you're now the moral conscience. And, you know, I couldn't agree any more than uh, he, he said it. My point is this. The encouragement to our players is that they wear a uniform that says Providence Christian College. And there is a major disconnect when you're dropping an F-bomb and an ump with a T-shirt that says Providence Christian College. And so what we're trying to get them to say is it is not either glorifying to the Savior or really honoring representing the school if there is this discontinuity between Christian and your conduct. I love the guys. I empathize with the guys, but I can't lie and say that's not problematic. And in the same way, this is what Jude is saying. He's saying that there are people that are going to try to get you to sort of think that Christianity is either all grace or all truth, and it's really a beautiful blending of the two. It's truth wrapped in grace. It's what we need to hear, even if at times we don't want to hear it. We are loved by God, but oftentimes called to pursue him. And in this particular time, we are called to contend for a faith that honors and glorifies him. Then he tells us another thing, Jude. He says, not only should the beloved contend for the faith, the beloved must identify the fraudulent. And this is where it gets sticky for some, because in our postmodern culture, we don't like to be seen as the intolerant, uh, arrogant, And I don't like being that person either. I don't like being seen as the person who thinks he knows it all. But there is a particular call that within the context of a Christian faith, there are going to be times, and Jude, Jesus' brother, says so, where you have to kind of sort of ID the people who are causing trouble for the movement. He says this in verse 4 of Jude 1, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. As is the case in every generation, because this passage says the scriptures say that they were destined to be these people, there's always going to be a strand of people who claim to be Christian but redefine the faith through nuanced discussion or sketchy biblical interpretation You're always going to be put in a place that Jude was saying these believers were put in. They come in, they're not necessarily noticed. You know, you you think, okay, there might be something amiss, I don't get it. And then over time, you begin to see that their teaching does a couple of things. And in this particular instance, he said, these teachers pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So here are your two tests. If you're wondering whether or not the church you're attending or the conference you're going to or the person that you're fond of in media is, is, is fraudulent, at least this is one of the biblical tests. All right, and the first would be, does it lead to disobedience to the scriptures or a watering down thereof so that you don't have to listen to them because they're no longer authoritative in your life? Second, Does it cause you to deny that Jesus Christ is the only master and Lord? 
Let me tackle the first one first. Does it lead to disobedience to the Scriptures? You see this kind of thing in abundance in Western culture as the likes of some so-called Christian ministers are more concerned about being relevant than they are about being faithful to Scripture. One particular uh, outspoken so-called Christian minister got his start in this area, Fuller Seminary, worked at Lake Avenue, became real famous, and then said, you know what, I, I don't think I believe what I used to believe anymore. And then has made statements along the lines of, you know what, if we don't change what we believe, we're going to be irrelevant. And I'm here to tell you that the goal of the Christian faith is not relevance. Uh, the Christians in Islamic state countries right now are not very culturally relevant. I can assure you of that. In fact, their faithfulness probably leads to their death. So the goal can't be fruitfulness. We're hopeful for fruitfulness, but fruitfulness is God's business. Faithfulness is ours. And what we have to do is make sure that whatever we're being taught is in concert with Scripture and actually encouraging greater obedience, even to the difficult parts of Scripture. Abstaining from sex before marriage has always been crazy. You know, even when I was younger, I was like, are you nuts? I'm not going to do this. I mean, I understood that. My nature says now, and Jesus is saying, wait. And I'm thinking, no. And so, you know, everybody understands that, but the scriptures are very clear. Sex is for the marriage, and it is for a marriage of a man and a woman. Abstaining from sex before marriage or outside of God's intent for marriage is commanded in Scripture. Even Pope Francis, thought by cultural progressives as a forward thinker, sees this as a biblical reality we can't escape. The latest papal encyclical graciously lays out a truth that he defends. And this is the part where I get to actually quote from Pope Francis. He says this, quote, We would like before all else to reaffirm that every person, regardless of sexual orientation, ought to be respected in his or her dignity and treated with consideration, while every sign of unjust discrimination is to be carefully avoided, particularly any form of aggression or violence. Such families should be given respect for respectful pastoral guidance so that those who manifest a homosexual orientation can receive the assistance they need to understand and fully carry out God's will in their lives. In discussing the dignity and the mission of the family, the Synod Fathers observed that as far as proposals to place unions between homosexual persons on the same level as marriage, there are absolutely no grounds for considering homosexual unions to be any way, in any way similar or even remotely analogous to God's plan for marriage and family. It is unacceptable that local churches should be subjected to pressure in this matter and that international bodies should make financial aid to poor countries dependent on the introduction of laws to establish marriage between persons of the same sex. So you can see why this is going to be a difficult week for Republicans and Democrats alike. So you can't be Ted Cruz and jump up and down about how family values oriented my man Pope is when like last month you said he was a commie. And then this week, you know, it's going to be very difficult for Hillary Clinton or her opponent to be able to stand there and feel the burn any longer when they don't actually agree with what he's saying. Pope Francis 
is encouraging us with a biblical model that we are to trust God. And there are going to be times when what we think naturally makes sense to us is the opposite of what God wants us to do. This is true in many categories of obedience to God, not just in human sexuality. When you talk about giving away your resources to charity and church, you know, when you're thin on resources and you think 10%, really? Are you kidding me? I mean, that's a lot of change at the end of the month to go, okay, I guess we're going to do this by faith because his word is clear. My nature says, keep it. What am I going to do with this space in between? This is the nature of struggling as a Christian. It's believing and trusting that God knows better than we do, that he is the creator and we are the created, that he knows how we operate best. And in our broken world, we are so fractured that we foolishly think we know something that we, we really don't. And so we have to defer. This is the part of the Christian faith. Trusting God, for instance, with our sexuality, as in all areas of obedience, is usually done without all understanding. This also sets us up. When we come to a place of Scripture where it's really difficult for us, but we do it by faith because the Word says that we're supposed to, even though our nature is telling us not to, what this does is it prepares us because there are going to be things in life that are difficult, curveballs you didn't see coming, a life that goes off the rails unexpectedly, a job that you didn't get that you thought you deserved, a spouse that left you and you thought she never would, a person who is treating you poorly in the workplace and you can't do anything about it, a child who's in rebellion. All these things happen and you feel like this is out of control. I don't understand. If we spend our whole life ignoring the scriptures with regards to how we live and ignoring what God is trying to get us to do, which is to trust him, is it really any surprise that we can't trust him that life isn't going the direction we wanted it to go in the first place? The two are connected. Our ability to trust God is rooted in our day-to-day trusting him with the little things. And then when those big things happen and somebody leaves your life, they pass away, they decide the relationship's over, or something even more painful takes place in your life. You then have a pattern in your life where you've been saying, I'm going to, again, trust what I do not understand. King Solomon understood this. That's why in Proverbs 3, 5 through 8, he says this. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes, Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So he said the first test of whether or not you were in fraudulent territory was whether or not the teaching was leading you to disobey the scripture. The second test is, is akin to it, and that is, does it cause you to deny that Jesus Christ is the only master and Lord? Does, it, does the teaching that would be fraudulent, if you want to test whether it's fraudulent, does it, does it cause you to take obedience to God less seriously? Or does it make you think that there is another master and Lord? In an age where certain men have crept into the American church unnoticed, 
and proclaimed a gospel very different from that which was delivered to the first century believers, we are hearing the same echoes, the same echoes that Jude did. There is no eternal judgment. There is no consequence to rejecting the free gift of God's grace in Jesus Christ. There are many ways that people can be restored to God by virtue of their unique or self-discovered religious belief. Christianity isn't about Jesus Christ rising from the dead to validate his claim to being divine and deserving of worship and our submission. These false teachers are now saying that there are many ways to Jesus, many ways to God. This is what's crazy. If Jesus is God, then they would oddly be saying that there are other ways to get to Jesus other than going to Jesus. It really doesn't make any sense. If he's God, then there isn't another way to get to him. You just go to him. If he's not God, then ignore him, for goodness sake. Aside from it being illogical, it it really contradicts Scripture. Peter, who Roman Catholics would say was the first bishop of Rome, said this in Acts chapter 4, and there is no salvation, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by which men mu- we, among men by which we must be saved. The apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. I was going to get a newspaper many years ago, and for those of you who don't know what going to get a newspaper means, um, there used to be this box, and you'd go up to it, and you'd put coins in it, and then you'd pull the door down, and there'd be this stack of newspapers. And it was kind of an honor system. You'd just grab one. In theory, you could grab the whole stack, but there was this odd sort of old-fashioned trust that you were only going to grab one. And so I put my coins in. I pulled the door down. I got my paper, and as I was closing up the door... This person came from behind me and stuck their hand in there. I mean, literally, got around me and wanted to get in there before the door closed so they could get a free paper. And there was something about that that really bothered me. (laughs) And it was partially that, you know, I had just paid and they were basically piggybacking and getting a freebie. But then there was something also about it that was just so brazenly obnoxious. They could have offered to, like, pay half my paper. Maybe we could have had a deal. But uh, for whatever reason, I just thought, you know, this is just wrong. So I grabbed their hand, <laughs> and I pulled it out of there. Sorry about that. And, uh, and I shut the thing. And fortunately, I'm a little beefy, and they weren't. And so they kind of looked at me like, dude, man, what's up? And I said, dude, you're ripping the company off. And, and we had this little conversation out there in the parking lot. And I know what you're saying. What does this have to do with anything you've been talking about today? There are going to be times where we do difficult things and say difficult things, and people aren't necessarily always going to respond to it. The beloved have been told to identify the fraudulent as Jude did. And I know that pointing out the fraudulent is an act of love on three levels. And in my particular case, I start with the one who was offended, the, the people who own the newspaper, you know, the paper company. Um, it was my refusal to allow this person to steal a paper was an act of love toward them. In another way, it was an act of love toward the person who was going to commit the crime. I I basically prevented them from doing something wrong. I I also, hopefully, if they're this enlightened, will, uh, will recognize that 
the conflict they had with me should help them realize that their way of relating to others is substandard. And perhaps maybe in their life, they should do some reflection. Uh, But ultimately, it's about loving God. And, And I'd like to say that I was doing that to love God, but I can tell you, I'm not sure that's true. I can tell you that we're called, though, to love God that this is what is supposed to drive us to contend for the faith, not a sense of being right or better or more superior to others. We are all strugglers here, gay, straight, confused. We're all in a place where we're saying, God, I know you're calling me to obedience and this is difficult. I need your spirit to fill me, to trust you, to grow in you. I need fellowship with you so that I will build trust in you so that I can follow you more faithfully. I want to be the child of God, the beloved who contends for the faith and is willing for the sake of others to identify the fraudulent. Our relationship with him is by grace through faith. But this faith is not alone. It naturally produces a love for God that results in doing good works, which he's prepared in advance for us to do. God has called us to holiness. He has set us apart to pursue reflecting his character in all that we do so that others might see him in us and give him the praise that he's due. Let's pray to that end, shall we? Father, we need you today. We are always amazed by your grace, always overwhelmed by how fortunate we are to be the recipients of it. And Father, we're more concerned at times about how flippant we are about our own sin, how seemingly apathetic we might be about areas of disobedience in our lives that displease you. Lord, uh, this must change in us, not because we're scared of you, but you're our father and you've called us to a family meeting to say something has got to change. And I pray that you'd grieve us to the degree that it would help us to want to love you, that it would produce genuine repentance in our heart. And it's frightening for us to ask that because none of us like to feel grieved, but we won't change unless we know that we've disappointed you in some way. Thank you for your forgiveness. We confess these things to you and pray that this time as we approach the Lord's table, Father, would be a time of great restoration. In Christ's name we pray.